Job said. Oh, that my words were written down. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he shall stand upon the earth. From the book of Job, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I have to make a confession today, and I hope that you'll still like me afterwards. Sometimes I have problems with the lectionary. I don't know if that's okay or not, if they'll revoke my ordination or what will happen when that comes out. But I sometimes have problems with the lectionary. Problems that arise when I forget what it is, when I begin to assume that it, like the scriptures themselves, is sacred. And I forget that it is, in fact, a tool. In fact, a great tool, given an almost thankless task of making sure large swaths of scripture are read Sunday after Sunday, that we hear not just one or two verses here or there, or even uh, preachers, just their favorite places to hang out in certain passages, but we hear, rather, a large chunk of the Bible. I, like you, have marveled week after week as patterns begin to emerge, as we are placed not only within individual narratives, but within the symphonic sweep of the whole of Scripture. And indeed, growing up without the presence of the lectionary in the pulpits of my youth, I can say I am grateful. I am grateful for it. It is a wonderful tool. But its praises now properly, or at least provisionally sung, when I find it lacking is when I make the mistake of thinking, as I think we too all often do, that it is suitable for the sufficient study of the whole of Scripture, or that every preached sermon must find its place within its boundaries. For if every homily must make a home out of the lectionary, then Job, our friend, is left mostly homeless a few bits of a thatched nest, perhaps, or the makings of the beginnings of a fox's hole, but no great mansion, for sure. In fact, Job fares just about as well as the Apocrypha in our Sunday morning readings. As I began to think about why this is, I did come up with some some answers, some potential answers for why this, this great book of the Bible, this, this huge pillar of theology sits unread mostly Sunday after Sunday. It is a complex book. It's a narrative net woven together so tightly that to begin to pull apart pericopes is to risk its total unraveling. Even today, the section we read was such a, a small selection from the entire book. Well, why is this? Well, it's actually because it's a drama. It's an entire narrative. It doesn't resolve in a few sentences. In fact, it takes the entire book to come to any sort of conclusion. Those who have read it recently, I sat down and read the whole thing last week in Eugene Peterson's The Message, just 
just, uh, which is what I do when I want to get caught up in the narrative of something. I don't want to get caught, you know, sort of looking at verse numbers and, and forgetting that there's actually a story that's sweeping me. When I want to get into the minutiae, it's not where I go. But when I want to be swept up in it, in the story of Scripture, and particularly narrative passages, that's where I go. And I sit and read the whole thing. It took me about 45 minutes, maybe an hour. You know, it starts off, what I noticed immediately was that it felt like a stage play. I could see the scene set, God's throne room. God is there with all his angels, with his mighty court, and suddenly Satan comes strutting in looking for a soul to steal. He comes to God and says, you know, I've been walking around, I've been seeing people, and God says, oh, so you've seen Job. He's doing a great job, isn't he, Job? He loves me so much. He's my friend. He cares about my law. He keeps my word. And Satan says, yeah, I mean, kind of, sure. But, you know, it's really just because you've given him every reason to do that. His loyalty is not based on the love of your law or even the love of the Lord. His loyalty is based on the luxury of his lifestyle. Begin to pull but a little bit of the cord. Leave him in a threadbare life and see how readily he leaves behind this lifestyle that you presently laud. Satan wants to wager that Job's faith is thin based only on the fact that suffering is not part of his life. And God is willing to take that wager. Well, that's troubling. That hardly fits well with a small portion of reading on a Sunday morning where you begin to go home and think, oh my goodness, are God and the devil playing dice over my soul just this very moment? Is that what's happening? Is everything bad happening to me because the, the chains have been taken off? It's troubling. It's messy. It's not an easy thing to deal with. It's not neat and clean. The trouble continues as Job's troubles begin, as chaos is unleashed on his life. Soon, suddenly he finds himself, and again, I see the stage happening here. Four messengers come to him. I see one, stage right, here's this terrible message, all of your wealth is gone. Stage left, your sons and daughters are all dead. Stage right, stage left, all of a sudden these messages compiling on Job. And Job weeps and grieves. He does not curse God. He won't go that far. So Satan says, well, I get it. You're right. He hasn't done it yet. But here's the thing. Who knows how much he cared about all those things, his sons, his daughters, his wealth. Health. Health. If you go after Job's health, he will curse you. If go, you go after that which is internal, not external to him, he will leave you behind. And so God says, okay, but you can't kill him. You can't kill him. And so Job finds himself covered in these wounds, seeping pus, this toxic goo just oozing out of him. He has to get the broken part of a, of a pot shard to scratch his itches. It's really a terrible scene. It's at this point that Job's friends or so-called friends show up and sit with him. And, you know, we're, we're really, I mean, and we're gonna, I'm going to do it as well, but we're really quick to pick on these guys. It's just sort of like how you immediately pick on the Pharisees when you're reading the Gospels, even though at the time it would have been assumed, 
Well, they're not doing all the wrong things. And Job's friends indeed start off in the right. They don't say anything to him at first. They just sit with him. They just sit in his grief with him. They take their grief upon themselves and they sit in it. And then Job says something that's also troubling. He begins to wish, like George Bailey of Bedford Falls, that he had never been born, except for he has no bumbling angel to show him the error of his ways, no clearance to grant him clarity about how bad the world would be if Job wasn't in it. It doesn't even seem to be the message of the story at all. Instead, Job is left with his friends, these sort of armchair philosophers and theologians, giving him the why of all this that's happening to him. And their answers are, of course, entirely suspect. They're not completely wrong. That's what makes them worse. (laughs) As you read them, you might start to say, well, like, wait a second, I can follow that logic. And actually, they're not wrong on this point here. It's as if a few grains of truth were scattered into the sun-beaten Sahara. You can go looking for them, but it's going to take some time, and you risk mistaking the sands for the salvation words, and you also risk dying of thirst long before you found anything worthwhile. So again, hardly the stuff of short, short Sunday morning readings or sermons. And then Job begins to, to protest, and we might notice a pattern Commiserate with the Psalms of Lament, which invite us to protest to God, to speak out to God in anger when things aren't going the way we want, that invite us to be brutally honest with God and say, why is this happening? So those aren't bad things. But even Job, at the end of, his, at the, end of the story, seems to wish he could take some of the words back. So you've got to imagine the sort of prudent lectionary compiler reading that Job wishes he could take some of those words back and going, which ones? Which ones do you wish you could take back? How much wide out are we talking here, Job? And so it's safer just to leave those out of the lectionary readings than to risk putting in something that the speaker himself wishes he'd never said. So I understand. I understand why Job sort of gets pushed to the side in our lectionary. But it's not all right. And a sermon here or then about it is is not enough. And, And of course, I invite you, I encourage you, I exhort you, go read it for yourself. But it's not just individuals, not just persons who miss out when Job is missing from our lives. It's communities. It's the community of the people of God who suffer a loss. Indeed, we suffer the loss of suffering and loss. We suffer the loss of suffering and loss being right at home in the Scriptures themselves. Job doesn't fit into an easy box. He doesn't wrap up his story as quickly as we like. His, his words don't fit within a short psalm. And then his friend's answers are, of course, half measures, appealing perhaps to our logical minds, but leaving something to be wanted in the deepest longing 
of our hearts. It's because Job's suffering is our suffering. Job's suffering is our suffering. Think of the wounds in our own lives that have scabbed over with time but require just the most minuscule pinprick to be let loose upon us again. The death of a friend or family member. Illness. Illness in yourself, in your own body, or someone close to you. Or perhaps it's nothing happening in your own self, your own life. It's something happening to someone else, something that you wish you could shield someone you love from. Or perhaps it's the stabs of those who ought to have shielded you, but instead wounded you, coiling even now like barbed wire around your insides. And the world's been reminding me recently, as it tends to do, that it is broken. It is broken. I ask, I ask that you would keep uh, my family in your prayers. I ask that you would keep Catherine's family in your prayers as a major surgery looms for her father in the coming weeks. I ask you to pray for your rector and his family. There's no scandal. There's nothing, there's nothing you know, wisely on sabbatical. There's no scandal unless you're scandalized by the fact that your rector is a human being. And that, if that scandalizes you, maybe you're in the wrong place. Because this is the truth of all of us. We suffer. We lose. We falter. We fail. There is not enough in ourselves. We don't have it. And so if the shadow of suffering falls on you right now, or if it falls on you in the future, which it surely will, it surely will. Well, here's some good news. The scriptures are not silent. The lectionary may be lacking, but the scriptures are not silent. Job's story belongs here. It is holy, no less than the words of the Gospels themselves. And you belong here. The mangled mess of your life, the brokenness, the fallenness, it belongs here. It belongs here. In fact, if you have it all together, I don't know why you'd bother showing up. Surely there's something better for you to be doing on a Sunday morning if you've got it all together. But those pieces of your life, those wounds, those aren't the things that keep you from holiness. Those are the very grounds where God delights to work. They are holiness in waiting. This is not a temple to the successful. It is a sanctuary for the sorrowful. We don't revel in our brokenness. That's not what I'm saying. Please don't hear me saying that you now have permission to go throw your dirty laundry on the first person that you see. <laughs> they probably have a pile of their own at home. We don't revel in our brokenness 
But we offer it up like a priest at the altar. We offer it up to God, saying, please, take this. This is, this is what I have. This is honestly who I am. We offer it up. We offer it up in prayer. We offer it up in praise, trusting that he will be the one to set things right. We offer it up to one another in community, in honesty, in vulnerability. We offer it up trusting that he will burn away that which is dross and that we will see God face to face. Job writes, knowing this, Oh, that when my words were written down that they could stand the test of time. Guess what? They have. They're here. But it's not our eyes that Job was thinking about, even though they have comforted and confounded many throughout the centuries. It was another set of eyes. For I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that my Redeemer lives. And he will stand upon the earth. This is a cry to heaven. Is the words of a man marked for death towards a living God. A prayer that one day God will stand upon the earth. That one day he will read these words. That he will take these words and put them in his own story. And he's done that. These words are taken up and they are taken into God's holy word, but they were also taken up into his word made flesh. Job's story became Christ's story. He took it into himself. He became a man well acquainted with grief, a man of constant sorrow. Job's Redeemer walked upon the earth. He read these stories, this story as a young man, and he lived this story the rest of his life so that you and I might say, even in my flesh, I will behold God. And so that we might understand that our suffering is not a barrier to beholding God. It is the very means by which that is offered to us. For the Word made flesh took this Word into his very life. He takes all our stories. He gathers them up into himself for the healing of the world. And from his eternal wounds flows healing waters of everlasting life. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.